Hello, and welcome to Building Community with Whitney and Anu. We are two Asian American millennials who aim to empower our communities through our stories and words, one cup of tea at a time. Welcome to another episode of Building Community with Whitney and Anud. Today we have a very special guest, the extremely talented Los Angeles-based artist Kayla Tonge, aka Coco Ono. Kayla was born in South Korea and adopted by a Japanese-American family. Her love for poetry and photography slowly progressed into a conceptual performance practice, which incorporates elements of exotic dancing. She is also the co-producer of Sacred Wounds, an online show focused around ritual, subverting cultural stereotypes, and ancestral healing for Asian performers and cultural producers. As Coco Ono, she expresses racial stereotyping, emotional, physical, and societal confines, often using dark humor. Kayla's work is created to facilitate a meaningful dialogue, highlighting the common human condition, including themes about connections, identity, and belonging. Kayla's work has been exhibited in various locations, including Human Resources, Highways, Red Cat, Torrance Art Museum, CalArts, Performance Studies International, Melbourne, and beyond. Currently, she is completing a BA in Art at the University of California, Los Angeles. We are so excited to have you today, so thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. One of the things that I really enjoy about your art is that it incorporates a lot of themes about the human condition, but it really, the way you choose to portray these are so refreshing to me and that I think it might've been because I haven't gotten a chance to see you live yet, but the way you incorporate video and elements of like traditional Asian symbolism and stuff like that, I really enjoy that. And I found that that was really relatable as well. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little more about the inspiration behind the name Coco Ono and how that plays into your identity and your art. Started about... 2015, I was actually going by the name Akira for about 10 years. And um, I, I don't know, I just, I guess, wanted um, a fresh kind of identity. I kept getting asked if I was, you know, the porn star, if I was named after the anime, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I would have to explain so many things like well it's actually there's like a lot of you know men with this name in japan and uh you know there's a filmmaker with this name like there you know it's it's not just these people that you think it is um so i one day decided i was just gonna reinvent my character and i kind of um just because I, I think I kept Akira for so long, just because I thought that I couldn't change it because everybody knew me as that uh, name. So then um, I had been doing burlesque shows under that name for quite a few years. And then one day, as kind of a joke, a friend of mine said, oh, you should be, you know, Coco now. And then it, it kind of just stuck. And um, I... Thought it was a really cool blend of Yoko Ono and Coco Chanel, and um, I, I was, you know, really into uh, Yoko Ono's conceptual work. And 
Coco Chanel's kind of drive and the fact that she was an orphan as well uh, resonated with me and, and really um, basically like made her life what it is. Like she really uh, was able to uh, create the future uh, that she wanted and the legacy that she wanted. And I, I found that really fascinating once I started to kind of go backwards with the history of um, these two women. Uh, so then I realized that I could actually create really subversive acts as well. Um, so it, it's funny when you change your name, you kind of realize, I guess, what what are the possibilities that come with that? And yeah, I just, I found, I guess, a lot of creativity in being able to discuss um, personal issues or, you know, political issues, cultural uh, symbolism, um, basically. And uh, I mean, oftentimes it would be like, you know, through sexuality or parody. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I really enjoyed that transition. That's really cool. Yeah. I, uh, it's interesting whenever people hear Japanese names like if your ears are trained to hear it like Akira that's my granddad's middle name or that was that was his middle name and so it's like for me like I grew up around that name but like my middle name is is Keiko which is also a common Japanese name and so people, Keiko yeah my, yeah my middle name is Noriko oh nice yeah and so my, people yeah my Japanese middle name yeah so they think that that's um they think that they're kind of exotic like there's an exotization to our, our names and it's it's just kind of weird to me because for me it's just commonplace and it's something that I grew up with and so when people associate like Keiko with like um I think there was like an orca named Keiko at one point that was iconic and so people associated with that um Akira I often hear like about the anime or about the comics and it's like that's just one instance that it just happens to have the name but it's like this whole it's a it has cultural significance kind of so it's I don't know. It's it just... funny that you said that though about having people commenting on yeah. the name because it that's like when I changed it to something that was obviously very common. Like everyone knows who Coco Chanel is and Yoko Ono. So it's like I don't really have to explain as right. opposed to when it's like, oh, you're after the anime or the, you're after this. It's like I felt like at least when I have these two iconic women, I'm like, well, I was saying, you know, I combine their names instead of having to like yeah be exoticized through yeah yeah it's it's very strange how people people do that um Yoko Ono is one of my favorite artists too I really I studied art at UC Santa Cruz and I really enjoyed her her artwork I eventually got into drawing and painting more so but I really oh, cool. enjoyed her I really enjoyed her as a person um and also so that inspired some of the drawing and painting yes yeah conceptual work Cool. Yeah, because for me, she was like one of the first people who was a visible Japanese person who was doing who was doing art. And so I was like, well, this is someone who she's in the public eye. She creates things. I feel a part of me is convinced that even if Yoko Ono were broke, she would still be creating the art that she creates. And so, Absolutely. I, yeah, That's and so exactly it's the just same feeling is. that I had. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was one of my favorite things about her. And so I really... I really took that to heart and I was like, well, no matter what, you have to create things because this is just, it's a lifestyle and not just a, a career path. Absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely a lifestyle. 
did um i was curious about your friend like when she created the name cocona did she just think that up or was it just it was i it was just i think a lot of uh late nights turn into brainstorm sessions and i would say like one percent of those ideas get you know turn into reality and that's really cool that is really cool yeah because it's such a it's such a catchy name i was i'm sure so i mean memorable. i'm sure you have a, a a you know origin story we do yeah so what happened with both the building community was when we were creating the podcast was when we we've told the story before but it's like we were talking to a mutual friend and they said something slightly racist about Asian people. And so we decided to create the podcast and we, Anu and I both read like puns. And so we decided to, yeah, same. And so we decided to, it was between building community and um, a couple of other ones. And I'm not sure if you remember the other names yeah. that we were trying to figure out. I, I think it's better left in the in the vault. But I think <laughs> in the gray area, it's a great name. <laughs> Thank you. We had serendipity. That was one. that's a good one. That's yeah. a great one too. Barefoot tea. We had a couple. Yeah, we did. We did have a couple. We had we had the growing up podcast because we wanted something that was millennial made, but also spoke to. A lot of Asian Americans, but we, did, we also wanted to incorporate elements of of the joy of being Asian American because I I feel like culturally it's hard to, at least for me, like it's hard to express joy, like in a way that is not palatable. That's not the right word, but like in a way that people understand. That's very relatable. <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah, it's really great what you are both doing, and um, I think. That's a very good point to make about the importance of expressing joy and showing, um, you know, a full spectrum of Asian people and their experiences because they're very different. Yeah, definitely. The Asian experience is, it's really nuanced. And I, I think that's really interesting. Like in I, I talk a lot about how I miss California in different ways because I grew up around even though I grew up in an Asian diaspora, it was like there were a lot of Asian people like a few hours away up in San Francisco. I'm from Monterey. And so um, here in Chicago, I'm having a bit of a harder time finding a Japanese diaspora. There's a cultural center that I live pretty close by, but it's often um, it's closed right now because of the pandemic. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of Japanese history here, but there isn't like an enclave of Japanese people, which is mm. interesting. And I I'm pretty sure that I'm not really sure about like why that is, but, um, or if it's like redlining or if, um, a lot of other people are in the suburbs now, but, um, I'm like slowly trying to uncover the history of Asian Americans here in Chicago. Cause in California, we're so we're integrated a lot more. Very integrated. Did you grow yeah. up in LA originally? I grew up in central California. Oh, nice. So uh, after the uh, Japanese internment camps, my parents' families just ended up as farmers uh, in Central California. So um, that's basically kind of their home base. I basically grew up there until I moved to LA uh, right after high school. I actually had quite a hard time finding a community 
in LA, surprisingly, it's, it's so big that, you know, it, it took me a, a number of years to find um, a really where I felt like I, I really fit in comfortably. And then um, I feel like once I did start beating uh, more uh, Asian diaspora, um, specifically artists, it was just like floodgates <laughs> opened. And then now I, I feel really lucky to have met a lot of Asian diaspora artists. That's been really cool. That's really awesome. Yeah. It seems like we just have to find each other because we're there. Like we exist. It's yeah. just, I, I felt that way when I, when I met Anu and a couple of other friends too. I, LA is so interesting because even though LA is extremely different from central California and my partner is from is from LA. And so that's one of the reasons why we decided to move to move down there for a bit. And so I I found that theoretically there's so many Asian people in LA. But when people say like, oh, there's a lot of there's like the highest population of of Asian people or LGBTQ people, it's like, well, doesn't LA have everything by default? Like they I feel like they're you can say that LA has a big amount of of a lot of people. And so I wasn't really sure how to quantify that. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's... Well, there is a lot, but that doesn't mean that you will share the same experiences. Right. Because it really depends on where you grow up or how you grow up. And um, I only recently in the past few years have met a lot of Korean artists that I, I feel really lucky to have somehow, you know, um, I guess just showed up in each other's lives. And um, it is kind of amazing. And there was a statistic thrown around uh, the other day, it was in class and uh, something like, you know, there's like 40, 30 or 40% Asian undergrads at UCLA, but Mm. how many have I actually connected with? A handful. So it's like, just because there's, you know, this high percentage doesn't mean that I am going to be friends. I have now I have, you know, thousands of new friends at UCLA. No, it doesn't, doesn't really happen like that. Totally. Yeah. I used to live by UCLA and I was really excited that there was a lot of boba tea. Yes. Boba tea shops there. And it's cool to, even though we don't have the same experiences, like I, I'm like seven years out of college now. And so I'm like, I, I probably am not, I'm probably not going to go to UCLA and like try to make friends with all of these, um, science people. But, um, yeah, I, I definitely find that it's cool to have different cultural aspects just be available to you. That brought a lot of comfort as well. Like I don't have to necessarily go, go searching for, for things. What is it like, um, studying art at UCLA? Well, it's been challenging because most of my time has been online. So I feel like I, I haven't had access to a lot of the professors that you know you are told you may have access to. So that was a little bit disappointing to see all these incredible faculty members that you don't maybe have opportunities to take classes with. However, the theory, um, and I think the way the classes are taught have, even though they're online, I think it's definitely strengthened my practice in my ability to talk 
about what I do and make. Because I, I was a performer for, I entered UCLA having taken only one uh, photo class at SMC. <laughs> and so I um, basically, you know, was just performing. Like I went from performing at clubs to performing at galleries and things. And uh, I, that was my experience. Was I didn't really have much formal training in art. Mm-hmm. So I, going back to school, you know, at my, at a later age, I, I don't know, I feel, I, I felt pretty bad because everyone was so much younger than me, but now I feel like I have uh, very specific uh, things that I would like to make and study. So I feel like I'm basically learning how to make physical objects and paint and print make things I, I never really did before. It was always just, you know, gather my props and go perform. Definitely. You know, very on the fly. I really enjoyed studying art in that sense too, because I, I started in photography as well. I um Oh cool. In Monterey I I went to community college first. And so I went to community college, did a lot of photo classes. I learned how to use the dark room. But when you study art, like, of course, they kind of force you to try different mediums. And at the time, I found that to be really, I found that to be really difficult, because it was kind of hard for me to take the skills that I learned in photography, and then take it to, like, a sculpture. I was thinking about this sculpture class I took, like, a few years back. And it was just so, it was really interesting to think three-dimensionally. It's so challenging. Yeah. I had a really hard time at first making probably a lot of crying oh yeah making and, and writing essays about your work I was mm-hmm. like I never did had to do this it was just you watched me perform and you just got it or you didn't yeah yeah and there's like the defending of your work like during the uh, do y'all have critiques online oh yeah 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 but don't critique. you don't you feel like in a way it kind of just made you really I don't know like unstoppable like yes <laughs> they're like no this is why I do this work and this is uh, my personal experience so you may not like it but you cannot take my personal experience and desecrate it you yes. can't because this is my experience and there's others that have experienced this and just because you have not does not mean that it is not worthy yeah and I find that art is still really subjective. So it's like, even like, even not long after I graduated, I was like, you know, art at the end, like art is something that you, for me, at least you make for yourself and it's something to, to help me with things and to help others with things. And so even just because some classmate, like who just has decided to dislike my work um, is fine. It really got me to be more confident in, in what I was trying to say in my work. Um, a lot of my work is about aspects of identity and, things that are inherently beautiful but used as tools of resilience um instead of fragility and i also I create that. a lot of queer artwork as well and so when i started doing that at uh, an art school that was like kind of where my journey started with creating that because i had a mentor who was amazing and he was like you should really create this work that is about your identity and your experiences so you're creating things about yourself and not necessarily about about other people who you see. And I was like, you know, that that made me feel really vulnerable and really like 
small at first, but then it became more empowering the more I showed it. And it got to a point where even if people didn't really care for it or it wasn't relatable to them, like it was, um, it did make me feel unstoppable in a lot of ways because I was able to defend it and I I was really confident in it and I, I truly believed in it. I'm trying to minor in gender studies. Um, I'm like, cool. I just sent my petition in, so I hope it gets approved. <laughs> I just wanted to have an extra quarter. And there was uh, specific classes that I couldn't really take unless I was majoring or minoring. And so I said, why not? <laughs> yeah. I have, I tell people I have zero, I don't really have any regrets when I was in college, but I, if I did have more time and more resources, I would have definitely wanted to minor in gender sexuality studies because UC Santa Cruz had a great program for that or anthropology because I would, I would crash these classes um, with friends. I had friends who would, the professors knew me, so they would just be like, oh, Whitney's here, like just hanging out. Just just sit there. Just chilling. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like all, it's like you get the benefits of learning, but you don't get the credits. And so I was, I was like, okay with that. And so um, I was like, you know, it, it would have been cool to have that on my degree, but yeah. So I think it's great that you're taking that opportunity. We'll see. Yes. <laughs> I think that that's going to be really cool. Do you find that when you, um, the work that you create for UCLA, do you find that it overlaps a lot with your work that you create for sacred wounds or the work that you create for your, your life? Yeah, I didn't think that it ever could, but I actually wrote my entrance uh, essay about being Coco Ono, and somehow it, it, it worked, or, you know, it resonated with someone, and, uh, you know, I think the question was, uh, like, what was something that you overcame uh, in your life. And, you know, they, you know, they ask you a series of entrance questions and, uh, you know, one of my responses was I took this job that was a source of shame, you know, at some point for many people who have done sex work. Um, but me in particular, I, I just thought that there was nothing uh, else I was capable of doing for mm. so long. And um, until I really started using it as um, the vehicle to tell stories. And yeah, so I just wrote about that. And then I I said, well, I don't know, it just became this thing that I started to really enjoy being able to share stories and connect with audience. So yeah, I I think it took many years because I, I kept things so separate for so long. Is I didn't think it would be like relevant to bring these topics up in school. I always thought, oh, there's college art and studio art, and then there's, you know, performing at 2 a.m. in some warehouse somewhere. But um, I think the more I started getting various mentors and studying about um, a lot of performers that had started in clubs you know, and then went on to be professors, went on to write books and really take their practice seriously. I I was like, oh, wow, I I can totally do this too. And so I am grateful. I had a lot of mentors, but starting Sacred Wounds, I I think I really was 
able to, um, with, you know, Wang, like merge literally everything that we loved in one space. And it was always kind of a dream of mine to bring all of these different types of performance together in one space. So I, because I did all of these types of performance as, you know, in various settings for work, for art. And so to do, to have burlesque artists and, you know, dancers and performance artists, video artists, it's just been, you know, I think we've had four shows now and it's just been so cool to see how everyone takes this medium and runs with it. Like, I mean, it's been really blowing my mind to see like what's happening. online like who knew we'd be here for an entire year but some people are really just using this medium and like running with it it's been really cool I find that it's almost become a genre of its own like oh for sure yeah it's definitely it's like and it's it's evolving so fast that it's so it's been so strange to simultaneously be in school and be seeing you know seeing what artists are doing online and it's almost like the university is like not even keeping up with Mm -hmm. what's going on because what's going on is so fast like just in this past year I'm like I I've just been so inspired by like so many artists that are just doing online shows or just using zoom in these crazy ways like I think you saw Midori's act where she's using like the annotate function on zoom to like mm-hmm. draw. And I, I, I honestly didn't even know that was a function on zoom. Yes. I mean, just stuff like that where you are like, wow, I mean, this is so incredible. Yeah. It was really cool. Majori's piece in particular was really interesting because I, I had no idea that you could annotate and at first, I didn't know how to do it, but it started so quickly because I remember when Wang was like, do you know how to annotate? And I was like, no, but of course they couldn't hear me because I, I was muted, but I felt, um, and then all of a sudden people started drawing on her and I was like, oh shit, like I had to get in oh, there. Oh, let so, me, let me, let me get on here. Yeah. So when let I finally, this face a few times. Yeah. and so when I finally got in, I was like, oh, this is cool. This is cool. And so I thought that was really, that was really interesting. And I've seen. I think there was another performance artist uh, in my class, my graduating class, where you could write on, you could write on her. Um, there were a couple of performance artists who like that was their thing, their medium, and so it's really cool to see that digitized because you can't see someone in person. So it's like obviously you can't do the thing where you like write on someone or even interact with someone in person. So it was a really, it it like invoked closeness in a way, and so there's yeah. something interesting about writing on someone's face. And that, that yeah. goes into it. Digitally. I yeah. Know. Can you um can you tell us a little more about Sacred Wounds, uh, Kayla? Um for, uh, for me, I'm not very familiar with the um the whole exotic dancing scene. Can you tell us more about what led you to create Sacred Wounds and also how you got into exotic dancing? I um I got into it because I I had lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years and I was working a retail job and not making a whole lot of money. And, you know, I was struggling. And then uh, 
a friend of mine that I worked with, we used to dance in the mirrors all the time. And it, it, I've just been dancing my whole life. And it's just like, it was something I wanted to do when I first moved to LA, but I think I was too shy. And so I just never went to audition. And then uh, I kept threatening that I would. And then one day it was more out of like necessity. I was like, I can't can't work like this and bring home such little money and work all day <laughs> you know so I one day yeah uh, my girlfriend and I just decided we're gonna quit our jobs and just go <laughs> work at this club and you know it was amazing at first I mean it was a little predatory at this particular club but I don't know. I, I maybe blocked out some of those experiences, but um, I was able to actually save money and travel and uh, do things that I'd always dreamed of, but I just never had, um, you know, the resources. So it kind of just kept evolving where I just kept working at different clubs and then I would go back and forth to Vegas and, um, I just started meeting all these people and then I, I didn't really know anything about burlesque and I had known some girls that were doing these shows and I was like, Oh, I'd like to try it. This is probably like a year or so after I was stripping and I just really loved it. I thought it was so fun, but I still was not really like finding my voice in particular. And so I would think I was just trying to replicate a lot of like classic burlesque and pretty much failing miserably. I just felt like I could never get it quite right and be as graceful as I envisioned. And so I stopped, I just stopped performing burlesque. I just kept stripping. And then um, a friend of mine that I'd worked with said, hey, um, I'm producing a show now. Uh, do you want to do it? And I was like, no, I, I don't really want to do burlesque anymore. I got kind of burnt out and I, I couldn't really ever find like, you know, a way to do it that felt authentic to me. I, and I don't really want to just keep replicating things I see. So I, anyways, long story short, she said, just do it once. If you hate it, then you don't ever have to do it again. So I uh, did it and I uh, was able to interact with the audience. And so I, I don't know, I just like immediately fell in love with it because it just felt um, like a, you know, a happening. <laughs> it really just felt, I just felt so alive and being able to interact with the audience was just amazing. And then, so yeah, from there, it was just, I just was like, okay, like, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> I literally took pretty much every single gig that was offered to me ever. <laughs> um, after that, that was probably like eight years ago. And just, I kept meeting, you know, different people in the process. And then I, I met Calamity Chang at the Montreal Burlesque Festival and um, she had asked me to be in the Asian Burlesque. It was called the Asian Burlesque Extravaganza at the time 
and that show literally blew my mind. I mean, I had never performed with that many other Asian people. And I did the show for three years in a row. And just every year I was like, this, this is really like, I'm, I feel at home, <laughs> you know, I had never had that experience um, ever. And so it was kind of like this dream show to be a part of. And from that, I met a lot of other performers who ended up booking me. And then I met Wang, Wang Newton. Um, and we just kind of kept touch and became friends and they ended up moving to Los Angeles before the pandemic to get into acting and then lockdown happened we kept in touch and uh, i was doing the cyber clown girl shows um right when, when the pandemic started to hit i don't know if you'd ever seen any of those but um i was working at this club in hollywood and basically some half half of the girls were getting unemployment and, and half weren't and so uh, me and some of the other performers, um, I, I came on maybe like a month or two later, but uh, some of the girls just overnight said, okay, well, the, the club shut down. Let's just do this online show. And so then that was born. And then I came on about a month later to start helping curate. And so I basically just learned how to do Zoom, learned how to you know monetize Eventbrite, and uh, learn how to use Canva. So, I, I mean, it was like pretty funny situation because literally none of us, we, I mean, I was using Zoom for school and, and meetings, but to completely do a 180 and transition. So yeah, learning how to do all these um, technical things was pretty invaluable. And so from that show, we were um, every week able to donate uh, from the two shows a week, a portion of our tips to various social justice, gender justice, um, environmental organizations. A lot of them we chose were based in Los Angeles because we wanted to give back. And now that we kind of had our own space that we controlled, we were able to actually um, discuss issues that we cared about with our audience. And so it felt like we were building, you know, a community online. And so after doing that show for maybe like about four months or so, I was like, wow, I now know how to basically produce an online show. And Wang and I were like, wouldn't it be, you know, wouldn't it be so cool if we could just start like an Asian online show where we could just book like our friends and performers and performance artists all over the world? Because now we're on this, we're in this space where everyone can just be tuning in from home. And the first one was just like, I don't know, it was just like magical how it came together. We literally called some of our friends up in New York, Philippines, and we're like, hey, we're doing this thing, Los Angeles. And we started it early, so the time could fit with uh, Manila, New York, and uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, and then the rest is history. <laughs> we're like, let's do this space where we can um, talk about Asian sexuality 
in a way that uh, we feel uh, we're creating the narrative, not someone else. So yeah, it that's, that's how it, it happened. And it was like pretty incredible. People just stayed after the show and, and we just talked and everyone just told stories. And that was so cool hearing about everyone's journey and how they found themselves through sexuality, you know, or through performance or through meeting other queer people. And so that was just like, I don't know, just this magical moment. That was a really long story, but thanks for asking. Oh, this is great. Yeah, that's actually a great segue into our next question. Um, how How does sexuality play into you're breaking out of this mold that's sort of uh, surround, surrounding Asian women? Well, I think it was, um, I think for Asian women, uh, often the sexuality is, is projected on us by by others. Um, and so I think that uh, it's been a source of confusion for me for a long time especially with around my adoption. And, um, you know, when I went back to Korea to find out more about what happened, I, you know, found out that uh, uh, my birth mother had uh, become pregnant and then she uh, basically hid in an unwed mother's home and hid her pregnancy from her family for nine months. And I, when I went there, I actually visited in 2011, there were still unwed mothers' homes. I mean, it just, it was pretty painful to see because here I am living pretty sexually free in Los Angeles doing this job that I'm putting a roof over my head. And like on the other side of the world, there's these women that have been shamed by society, by history by their families into you know hiding their pregnancies something that's like very normal and natural that's how we're all here and um so like I said I was dancing at the time but I don't think I made it a political statement until after I got back I was like wow the fact that I'm able to even do this freely is it felt like the antidote to all of the cultural shame that I felt was so heavy. And I think sometimes you don't realize like what you're carrying right. of your past or of your ancestors. Like, you know, you just know that something feels off, but you don't really know what it is. And then I think when I went back, I really, my eyes were pretty open. So I think I've been on this crusade <laughs> since 2011 to just, um, I guess, yeah, I remain free in my thinking around sexuality. Yeah, you know, I was uh, I was watching this documentary the other day, and I really liked this quote that was in there. It was um, it went along the lines of great art is creating something that shows something uncomfortable in yourself or in society that makes other people feel less alone. So this kind of reminds me of that. Do you feel like your past experiences have empowered you to use your platform in a certain way? Yeah, I I definitely think so. Especially 
when it comes to adoption, I've met so many adoptees and I've become friends with them, created art with them. And I feel so grateful that I've been able to share these experiences because it's like, had I not mentioned I was adopted or had I felt too much shame around it, I never would have had the opportunity to connect with others. And so I think, um, yeah, I think like the art of transforming these stories is, is really important and really valuable because like nobody, you know, people have similar stories, but no one has your particular story. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, um, there's another thing that I like to think about and that's that we're all, you know, unique creations and whatever art or whatever work we do in the world will never be replicated again. So that that for me resonates, even though a lot has already been done and, you know, sometimes art imitates other art. I feel like the individual person gives such power and force to that art that it, it becomes unique and different no matter what has been done in the past. Exactly. And and even just you sharing your story and, you know, you having this podcast and helping other people share their stories, like someone out there is definitely going to feel less alone. Someone out there with someone's story that you're sharing is, is going to impact someone listening. So definitely. And I found that that was one of my favorite things when I saw Sacred Wounds because I think you had someone from Japan, right? Who was? We had two uh, for this last one. We had two performers. Oh, yeah. oh we had oh, I, we had two, actually, three Japanese performers. One was in Tokyo for the show, and two are in California. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when I, cause when I saw like all these different people like showing their identity in different ways, I thought that was really refreshing, and I. I remember hearing that uh, there was someone who used the the Sayonara song and yeah. in one of the performances. And I was like, oh, I've heard this. I remember hearing like my grandparents would play this song and just hearing it in a new way from a different person. Um, it just really brought it brought back memories of my grandparents. But it was also like it's it's so refreshing to bring that like almost 20 years later. Like I, I just thought that was yeah. really cool. And how some things just never, um, some things are universal. And I, I felt more in touch with with my heritage that way. That's so cool. That's yeah. Yeah, she's really great. I literally found her on Instagram. <laughs> That's how. I don't even know how. Yeah. I, I think one day it came up in my feed and I was like, who is this? Like this is so wild. Like she does all these really amazing videos that are just like just from another world and I kept telling Wayne okay like we need to figure out a way to bring all these artists together and so every show we're always just like sending each other different you know artists or figuring out like the flow of the show has been really fun. I was curious about how ritual played the role ritual plays in your work because I know like for me like I grew up 
um with different rituals like I grew up around like altars where like every week we would like put offerings out and I have um I have memories of like you know when you're a little kid you don't really know like the significance of altars all the time so like I remember like eating no you don't in the water and stuff and yeah yeah, and my my grandma would just why is that tangerine up there it looks so good right I was like I I have memories of like and like there's pictures of like dead ancestors and stuff but I just kind of no one told me about them until much later and so I have memories of like my grandma would like make some tea or like some water and like a little rice or something and then be like oh take this to to the altar and I was like okay so I would go to this room there's like an altar room and I would like drink the water and my grandma thought that like someone like in the pictures was drinking the water because Asian people are very superstitious a lot of times and I just like I felt so bad like as a little kid and I was like oh it's actually just just me drinking the water and she like she was relieved but also kind of annoyed like and so that's when she finally explained it to me yeah I can totally relate there was a lot I grew up with a lot of ritual shoes um I I don't know about your family but I was um we went to Buddhist temple every Sunday And you, there was always, there was this um, wooden box and, and you put a quarter in it. Mm-hmm. And so my sister and I, you know, my parents would give us these quarters and we we're super excited. And, um, you know, we'd always go to all the festivals and wear these kind of, you know, outfits. <laughs> like, And I just didn't really also understand as a child what, all of this meant and all these symbols and these hats and you know robes and I remember there was like a, a kind of mochi community mochi making yeah, yeah. Uh, where it was like a giant rice cooker so I feel like I grew up with a lot of ritual we also had a lot of altars around the house and my grandparents had altars and it was like a specific incense that you burn mm. and yeah I didn't really understand it much because uh, my adopted mother passed away when I was uh, 14. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I lost a lot of that ritual because she was definitely like the one in the family that was kind of connecting us to, you know, my grandparents and ancestors. And so I, I think I lost a lot of that, um, I guess, until I uh, became an adult. And then I think I started to kind of develop my own rituals and get interested in rituals to as a way to connect with my hair you know Japanese and Korean heritage Mm -hmm. and so I think now when I'm reading about various like Korean rituals or or um like certain fruits or you know certain seasonal fruits it's like I don't know, it it started to resonate, I guess, with me. So now I'm kind of interested in just exploring, I guess, a period of like 20 years that was lost of, uh, yeah, not having a ritual in my life. I I absolutely relate to, to that. I remember saying earlier that the the Asian experience is very nuanced, but I find that being Asian American is even more nuanced. And I've I've actually haven't had the chance to go to Asia yet. Um, I really want to one day when the borders open. And so I, I never learned uh, the Japanese language growing up, even though I was surrounded by it. So like a lot of older Japanese people would speak it, but um, I I didn't learn it either, sadly. And it never occurred to my parents or my grandparents even to try to teach it to us. 
And yeah, so it was a thing it, to be was, American. Right. Yeah. And it was to, yeah. to assimilate and to like go to school. And so my, um, my granddad who was in the military, he, that's kind of the generation where they were the last generation to really speak Japanese fluently. And so my mom, now she's, she understands it, but she doesn't speak it. So like, that's like this, my dad. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this interesting dialogue where it's like, my grandma will speak Japanese and my mom will respond to her in English. And it's really interesting to kind yeah. of see that. Yeah. Doesn't it make you feel like a little bit sad? Like I feel like I want to learn and I, I keep saying, I don't know, maybe I'm past that point, but it makes me feel a little bit robbed. <laughs> like definitely. Yeah. I, I, I wish that, you know, I wish that my parents didn't try to assimilate so much and felt, you know, a strong need to pass this language down to my sister and I, but didn't happen absolutely yeah I I feel I mourn it a lot like I yeah I know theoretically I could learn it now but it's very um it's hard like it's I have this relationship to like the language where it's like I was growing up I was told that it was a non-essential language to learn a non-essential skill to have and so right it's hard to undo that where it's like you now at at 29 I'm just like I can learn this and I can, and it's useful for me and it's good for me to know it because otherwise it's going to, it's going to be lost. Like someday there's going to, there could be a generation where no one knows the language. And I I don't know if it'll get that, that far, but I definitely do feel a bit robbed with various um, traditions that were lost. And so I definitely relate to creating my own traditions. Kind of ending on a random, but <laughs> positive note. Um, one thing that we like to do in the very end is ask what your favorite meme is. So I know this is, <laughs> this is sort of from left field, but I know for me, my favorite meme is the angry cat meme, the the one where the cat is like, well, no, it's not the angry cat. It's the angry woman yelling at the cat. And so there's this like woman who's like just lost her mind and she's yelling at this cat and this white cat is sitting on this other side of this really nice um, done up dinner table. And it's sort of like, it's sort of like uh, teasing her and like provoking her. <laughs> it's, 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 um, it, it's an interesting meme. What's my favorite meme? Let me is probably something that Wang has shared with me. Oh, you know, this is so old, honestly, but I love pretty much any Kermit memes. <laughs> so obviously, you know, related to this podcast, like the that's none of my business. So oh, I, I love that I one. Know. That's like, I'm like, that's, I know that's like so old oh but it's timeless old, meme old meme old it's only like a couple of years old but like in meme world that's like ancient um yeah i'd say like any kermit meme i personally love memes because they're they're good like copy mechanisms almost um my favorite meme recently has been the bernie sanders memes oh but i, but, I, I mean think, those are all yeah it's hard to choose a, a favorite Right. Yeah. But I think if I, so that's like my current favorite, but I also find that it, 
I love the I love both of the ones that y'all mentioned, like the that's none of my business meme. I find that I do that in real life now. Like if I'm because I drink I drink tea a lot. You do this. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, that's none of my business. And I do this like it's. Oh, wait, you know what? Another one of my favorite now that I just remembered is the dog that's in flames. Yeah, yeah. I'm fine. fine. Okay, I realize that I send that to a lot of people. So that's probably definitely top of the list. They're like, oh, how are so you doing? Good. And you just send that. <laughs> it says it all. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fine. Awesome. Do you, is there anything you want to you want to plug before we end? Uh yeah. The next Sacred Wound show is April 10th, and we're celebrating Dr. Wang Newton's birthday. So you're all invited. Awesome. Like to celebrate them, the birth, <laughs> <laughs> their birth, which it was a, a momentous occasion, the birth of Dr. Wang Newton. Um, so yeah, we're going to do something fun. We're going to go back to, I think, the origins of the show, which is erotic ritual. And yeah, it's going to be a fun, casual evening. Very cool. Well, thank yeah. you so much for being on Building Community with us. We loved chatting. and It's really and awesome talking to you both. Yeah, we so appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. And I think it'll be really illuminating for some of the audiences. This might be their first foray into this world of uh, exotic dancing and, and dance in general. Thank you so Even much. art too, like, yeah. yeah. That does it for this episode of Building Community. Please show your support to Kayla by following her on Instagram. We will provide her Instagram links in our show notes. Also, please follow Build Community on social media. And we will see you next episode.